Well, good morning. My name is Stephen Shetterly, and I am the Director of Local and Global Outreach at BCC. I am really happy to be able to, to bring this message to you this morning. So there is a theatrical device that you might be aware of uh, that's called a play within a play. And it is just essentially what it sounds like. It's when a playwright, in, their, in writing their play, they insert another play so that the audience is watching a bunch of characters acting out a play who then go and start acting out a smaller play within that larger story. And in some way, that smaller story has some parallels or some connections to the larger story that's going on. So Wikipedia, for example, tells me that in the case of Hamlet, young Prince Hamlet puts on a play in order to expose his uncle as a murderer. His uncle, he believes, has murdered his father. And so Hamlet has this idea to put on a play, and he inserts a bunch of details into it that kind of parallel what he believes uh, his uncle did to his father. And he wants to do that to, to sort of prick the conscience of his uncle and, and to get some sort of a reaction out of him. Well, Hamlet's plan works superbly. Uh, of course, things still don't turn out very well for Hamlet because it is, after all, a Shakespearean tragedy. So what, what do you expect from that? Well, in any case, this, this play within a play or story within a story, uh, it shows up in a number of places within the Bible as well. One place that you can see it is in the book of 2 Samuel when the prophet Nathan comes to King David and he tells him a, a short little story about a rich man with a large flock of sheep who goes and steals the only lamb of a poor man. And in telling that story, he enables David to see his sin with Bathsheba from a different angle, in a different light. And David, his sin is exposed, and he repents. Well, stories within stories, or plays within plays, they're not just put there to sort of uh, fill up space or to provide extra entertainment. Usually they're put there because there are some significant parallels between the two stories. The one little story sheds light on the other bigger story in, in some important ways. Well, in the book of Philippians, it has a number of stories within stories, each of which kind of talk back and forth to one another and, and shed light on one another. And so, in our time today, we are going to have a chance to peek into the story of the Apostle Paul, the author of the letter, and we're going to see how that, how his story interacts with and sheds light on the story of the Philippian church, and how, in turn, that speaks into our story today. So it's important, first of all, to understand a little bit about how the story of the Philippian church, about where they found themselves uh, during this time, in order to get at what's going on. So, so what do we need to know about this church and, in Philippi and about Paul's relationship to it? Well, first of all, Paul knows these people. These are his friends. He planted this church. You can read about it in Acts 16. So in Acts, we learn that after Paul arrives in Philippi, he waits for the Jewish Sabbath, and then he goes outside the walls of the city. He goes down to the river where he expects to find uh, a spot where the Jewish people are praying, meeting to pray. And he strikes up conversation with several women who have shown up to pray. One of those women is Lydia, who is a God-fearing merchant. And she listens to what Paul has to say. And she believes. She believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And so from this first little seed, then, the church grows. 
And Paul eventually continues on his journeys, but at some point he receives some news about the Philippian church that, that causes him some concern. The church that he planted, that he loves, that has supported him financially, that church is in trouble. Difficult times had come for the Philippians. So the Philippian church was facing opposition, likely because of their refusal to take part in the worship of the Roman emperor. As Christians, they followed this risen Jesus character, who who they believed was not just king of the Jews, wasn't just captain of the Christians, but he was, in fact, Lord of Lords. He was the God of the whole cosmos, the rightful ruler of everything that exists. Now, the Christians in Philippi, they lived as good Roman citizens to the extent that they were able to, but they would acknowledge only one true Lord. Only, they would only worship one God, and his name didn't rhyme with geezer. Caesar wasn't worthy of worship. Only Jesus was. And, and so pressure from the surrounding culture was growing. If, if you're a real Roman citizen, which the people in Philippi at that time were, then you just do your part. You worship the emperor, okay? Get in line, right? And as so often happens when there is stress from outside, the stress from within starts to grow and take root and cause division. So there is division growing inside of the church with people starting to take sides on on theological and practical issues, and it was getting messy. And into the middle of this mess, the Apostle Paul drops this rather short very profound letter, which has survived for two millennia, which has breathed life into the church through that entire time. It is a remarkable letter. So let's turn to it now. I'm just going to read a portion of our entire passage for today. In chapter 1, verse 12 of Philippians, it says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord, and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So here we are getting a glimpse into Paul's story. He is sharing his own struggles. He's not writing this letter to his friends from the comfort of home or from the next church that he went on to pastor. This guy's in prison, and he's not sure that he's going to make it out alive. I don't think Paul here is just sharing details about his life to sort of fill up space or to give the Philippian church something to gossip about. You know, like, Aunt Mabel's doing well, Uh, her hip is doing better, my time in prison is going pretty good. No, it's not like that. I think what Paul is doing... Uh, is a little bit like what Shakespeare and lots of other writers have done throughout history. He is setting up a story within a story in order to shed more light on the the bigger story of the Philippian church. He is going to be sharing his own struggles and, and, and talking about how he's working through that in light of the Philippians' struggles. Paul has ended up in prison. He's a oppressed by powerful people from outside the family of faith, just like the Philippian church was. And how does he react to that? He says, this is advancing the gospel, folks. God's will is not thwarted by this little speed bump. 
And then he's facing the trouble of other Christians who are preaching, as he puts it in verse 17, he says they're preaching out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. So that's got to be painful. You've got division within the family of faith. You've got other Christians who are turning on Paul, who are trying to stir up division, who are making his life miserable. They're preaching with selfish motives. And here you can see the parallels with the Philippian church as well. There's division within the church. Well, how does Paul react? He says, this is advancing the gospel, folks. It doesn't matter. I mean, what? Really? Like, like this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about here. But Paul just says, is Christ being preached? Good. Well, keep it up then. And he doesn't, he doesn't just tolerate it. He doesn't just swallow his pride and, and let it happen. But he says, I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. And I want to spend a minute here because, well, this might just seem sort of like a throwaway line, kind of like saying, you know, that, that's great. What, what we've actually touched on is one of Paul's main themes through this entire letter to the Philippians, the theme of joy. Nine different times in this letter, Paul uses the word uh, rejoice or joy. It is a big deal for him and for the Philippians. In Greek, the word is chairo, and it means basically what you would think it means in English. It means be happy, be glad, be exuberant, right? It's a common word. It's actually a greeting, you know, like saying hello, joy, how are you doing today? But as he does so often, I think Paul here takes a a very common word and he fills it with new meaning based on on his experience of Christ. In Philippians and elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul uses the word joy in these very strange sort of paradoxical ways. I mean, think of it this way. What brings you joy? Speaking for myself, I can say, you know, mint Oreo ice cream brings me joy. What else? Uh, Uh... Backpacking in the North Cascades would bring me joy. An evening spent with friends, a well-crafted IPA, those things bring me joy. Well, what brings Paul joy? 2 Corinthians 13.9 We are glad, we have joy whenever we are weak, but you are strong. Philippians 2.17 Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And probably the emblematic verse for all of this, Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Paul finds joy in some weird stuff, in weakness, in the threat of death, this, this being poured out like a drink offering, in suffering and affliction. To the point that some have conjectured that maybe Paul was a masochist. Maybe he just got this perverse enjoyment out of pain. That's not the case. Paul doesn't seek out suffering. He doesn't go around trying to drum it up. But when it comes, and inevitably it will come as a Christian, he sees God at work in it. He rejoices because God's purposes are not thwarted by anything. And even in his suffering, he knows that he is becoming more like Christ. Jesus suffered, and if I'm going to be united with him, then that means I'm going to face suffering too. So I have joy. 
You see, Paul is eager to see the gospel moving forward no matter his own circumstances. Note what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say, I cannot wait to get out of jail so I can finally, you know, continue living out the gospel. God's purpose is being achieved even while he's in prison. The gospel is advancing precisely because of his chains. Let me be blunt here. The stuff that we have had to put up with during the the past several months, during coronavirus, during lockdowns, during the, the economic shutdown, it has amounted to suffering. It has not been pleasant. It has not been ideal. But I think some of us have acted as if this means that God has just gone on vacation. Church buildings are shut down? What? Like, how am I supposed to worship God? How am I supposed to, to, to live out the mission uh, that God has called me to in this world? I, I know I'm being a bit hyperbolic here. I certainly don't want to minimize anyone's pain. This has been a really hard few months. And, and it's understandable that people are frustrated and exasperated even. But if God can use the enslavement of his people in Egypt for his purposes, if he can use the exile of his people into Babylon, if he can use the destruction of his temple, if he can use the death of his only son for his purposes, then it is no big deal for him to use a global pandemic for his purposes in the world and in our lives individually. Honestly, I think that the Apostle Paul might look at our current situation and and his first instinct would probably be to say, rejoice. Rejoice, because God's purposes will not be thwarted. Rejoice, because he is active even in this. You might say he is active especially in this. Because time and again, history has shown that the church can be at its best during hardship, during struggles, during suffering, even during persecution. And it's when we are comfortable It's when we are complacent. It's when we feel that we have everything on lockdown. Ha ha, pun intended. It's at those times that the decay sets in. I think maybe the question that we need to ask ourselves personally and collectively as the church is not, you know, how on earth are we going to survive the rest of this time of lockdown? The question we should ask ourselves is, how is the gospel advancing in the world, in my community, in my own life? How is the gospel advancing during this time? How can we follow Paul in rejoicing in our circumstances? It is not that we ignore reality and we pretend like everything's just awesome because it's not. We're not called to be fake people who just paste on a smile and and go about life while we're dying on the inside. Paul was very much aware of his own suffering, the suffering of the Philippian church, He didn't try to explain it away or or to tell them to ignore it. But he did put it all into perspective. He allowed himself and the Philippians to see through the pain, to see the joy which lay throughout and on the other side of it all. So, we've seen today in the story of Paul... The opposition and the difficulty that he faced from outside the church, as well as from those who were fellow Christians. And we've seen how expertly he he tells his story and how he allows the Philippians to sort of draw their own conclusions and connections uh, to their own story as a church. But if this were only the story of Paul and the Philippian church, 
if it, if it were limited in time and space to, to just this one city in Macedonia during the first century, then this might be something that was, you know, of historical or literary interest, but it wouldn't be transformative. It, it, it wouldn't be something that is life-changing. Why is it that we can look at this letter that was written 2,000 years ago and say, that speaks to us right now? That sheds light on our story in 21st century North America. Well, I think it's because Paul knew that his example wasn't the end-all for the Philippians or for any other church. As great and as influential as Paul was, he was still just Paul, the man. Now, anytime Paul put himself out there as an example for any church, he was careful to point beyond himself in the process. Because Paul's story and the Philippians' story and BCC's story and the story of every Christian throughout history who's ever lived, it's all wrapped up in a story that is much bigger than any of us. And, and we are going to get there in the coming weeks, but I can't let this sermon go by without mentioning it. At the center, at the heart of this letter to the Philippians, Paul makes a plea to the church. In the second chapter of Philippians, which, which we should probably read daily, Paul says to those who are facing opposition and, and division within the church, he says this, Have the same mind as Christ Jesus. And then he launches into one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture, uh, and where in just a few short verses, he lays out the, the one big story that gives all of our little stories meaning and purpose and direction. He tells the story of Jesus. Jesus' story isn't just a model for us to, to try and imitate. It's not just a collection of moral lessons for us to kind of pick and choose and learn from, like Aesop's fables or something. No, his story enfolds our stories. His story redeems our stories. Jesus takes all of the loose ends and the frayed bits and, and the wandering little threads of our sad little stories, and he ties them all up into his good story. He makes them beautiful and meaningful. So Paul knows that. I mean, that was his story as well. The, the self-righteous, hate-filled, persecuting young man that he was, Jesus met him and transformed his story. And now Paul is sharing the fruit of that with the Philippian church. He's telling them that, that Jesus knows their story, that he's redeeming it, that he's working his will and his purposes in it even now. That's what they needed to know. And that's what we need to know too. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that, that for this message to the Philippian church, ancient as it is, that it speaks right to us and to our situation. That we can learn from and be encouraged by their story and by Paul's story, because ultimately we are all caught up in a much bigger story, authored and directed by you. Help us to rejoice in this fact, Jesus. Help us to see through our present crummy circumstances and catch a glimpse of the glory and goodness that runs throughout and behind and around it all. Help us to submit our personal stories to you, that you might redeem and rescue them by your grace and power. Amen.